If you will, please uh, turn again to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and although our focus is going to be verses 11 through 14, it would be good for us to look at the opening 10 verses of chapter 2 because uh, Paul's point in verses 11 through 14 flow out of his instruction in those opening verses. So if you will, Titus chapter 2, follow along as I read beginning at verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to too much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and world desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. When we look at this passage together, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the songs that we've sung and worship. Thank you for the chance to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for Paul and his obedience to your leading in his life and this letter that he wrote to his friend Titus on the Isle of Crete. Father, this morning, as we consider your grace, I I recognize full well that it is a familiar, familiar term a familiar concept, but Father, in your own way, by your Spirit, cause us to realize in a new and different way the significance of grace in our lives. We'll all praise you for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On two occasions, we lived in the Northern California area, We learned early on the significance of the winter rains for the ranches and the farms and the vineyards. But under certain circumstances, those rains could spell disaster in some locations. I read of one rainy season when the rains poured down on Southern California and it raised the potential danger of a mudslide and disaster 
a nightmare for one family. While that family was sleeping, the mud began to slide. It tore through their home and tore the home apart and carried away their baby out into the night and into the mud. That young couple went out and searched in the darkness, sloshing through the mud, digging and calling and crying for their baby without any results. When the morning sun was rising, a first responder came and had a bundle in its arms. It was their baby caked with mud but still alive. Those parents <laughs> took that baby into their arms. They didn't care about the mud. They loved on it and kissed it and cried and cleaned it up and were det- determined that that would never happen in the life of their child again. That story helps me understand the love and the mercy and the grace of God. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, But because of his great love for which he loved us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And that story reminds me of my condition apart from Jesus Christ when I was living in the mud and the muck of sin, being swept away to eternal death. God sent His Son to the muck and mud of this world to rescue me. His desire is that I stay out of that mud and stay out of that muck. And what He did for me, He's done for each and every one of us this morning. And and this passage, this short paragraph, in no other way it seems to me, demonstrates the grace of God in salvation, but also the ramifications in our lives about that grace of God. Before we look at the paragraph, let me just mention a couple of things. I, I want you to know that Titus and Paul were companions in ministry according to Galatians chapter 2. Prison in Rome, they traveled together to Crete to uh, get the work established there, but Paul was called away. He left Titus there to establish the work and to appoint elders. And, and just a grammatical note, I, I know school is out, and you don't want to think about grammar and stuff, but just a grammatical note, this paragraph, 11 through 14, is one long sentence in the original text, one long, a complicated sentence. Some of the English versions have chopped it up into sentences to make it readable for the English reader, and that's fine. The main subject clause is, the grace of God has appeared. The main dependent clause is instructing us. With that in mind, let's look at the text. It begins with that word for. The word for is a connector. It connects those first ten verses with Paul's instructions here. It's an a continuation and an explanation. Paul, how is the old man, the older woman, the younger man, the younger woman, how is the worker to accomplish what Titus is teaching them? Well, they do it by remembering. Remembering the grace of God has been revealed in time, in history. And we know what that word grace means, the unmerited favor of God that salvation doesn't come through moral reform or some good deeds or some good works. Salvation is a gift of God in His grace. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And I want you to realize that the whole purpose of this is so that Titus can instruct these folks as to how to live and how to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. How how, how do I do it? How, How does it happen? First of all, when Christ comes into our lives. That word adorn in verse 10 means the arrangement of jewels in a manner that sets off uh, one's beauty. The idea then is of making something attractive by doing credit to the object in view. The whole point of this passage is how do I live a life that pleases God? How do I adorn the gospel? First and foremost, through the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. That phrase, the grace of God, occurs 15 times in Paul's letters, in each case, it has about it the undeserved divine favor of God, the unmerited favor of God. I do want you to notice that this passage, verses 11 through 14, is mirrored and explained over in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. I invite you to take a look at that at some other time. But, but Paul goes on to underscore the truth of this appearance by that word appear. It was used in ancient literature as a technical term to describe a a hero or or a god breaking into a difficult situation and rescuing someone from that difficult or perilous situation. And Paul uses it here to describe Jesus Christ who appeared based on the grace of God to bring salvation. Also in the original text, the original Greek text, there are no punctuations. If you wanted to emphasize something, you moved it to the front of the sentence. And this word appeared begins the sentence in the Greek text. It appeared in history. Objective fact. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. The context makes it clear that Paul is not teaching some universal salvation or universal appearance to everyone of the gospel but he's talking about the universal availability of the gospel. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all kinds of men, all kinds of women, all kinds of children, all kinds of people. And the way they appropriate that grace of God is through faith. It seems strange to talk about grace as appearing, but it's a reference to Christ's first coming, of course, his his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. But, but the point is there's, there's a historical reality to grace. This grace that appears is both glorious and historic in the person of Jesus Christ. So when you think of a way to live that adorns or makes the gospel attractive, it begins by understanding the grace of God that saved you, that brought you into the family of God. Saving grace is where it all begins. But Paul goes on in verse 12 and talks about training grace or instructing grace. The antecedent of instructing is that word grace. Grace is an instructor. That word means to train, to educate, to discipline. It was used for the teaching of children. Grace is a teacher. This abstract term that we often use is here personified 
as a teacher. And, and notice there is a negative and a positive aspect to this teaching of grace. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. Where deny also means to say no. If you're old enough to remember the presidency of Ronald Reagan, you may remember that his wife Nancy began an initiative against drugs. It was called Just Say No. Supporters applauded it. Critics said it was too simplistic. But it did have some benefit. And Paul here says, Grace teaches us. When I understand the grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. One man describes this word as a lack of reverence for God that expresses itself in a complete disregard for God in thought and in action. This word is often linked with wickedness. It's the idea of living like an unbeliever, ungodliness, having no worship of God, no awe of God, no reverence for God, living as, one, as if one was an unbeliever. We're also to say no to worldly passions, lust, desires, appetites. That's all bound up in that word, uh, desires. Uh, worldly is, comes out of the world, where, where Satan is dominant, where his plan is being played out. The, the, the world system where Satan is promoted in action, in word, in deed. Worldly desires. Of course, there's a sexual compulsion to it, but it also includes anger and ambition, selfishness, speech, behavior, all those kinds of things. And, and what Paul is saying is that a true understanding of grace in my life magnifies the horror of the mud and the muck and the sin that might be in my life. Paul says, grace teaches us to say, no to ungodliness. No to worldly desires. Paul expects, expects that the effect of seeing God and all of His grace and all of His grandeur, His work in our life, will cause us to deny the things of the world. I'm reminded of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he gets a vision of God and he bows before Him I'm a man of unclean lips. When he saw God, he also saw his sin. When we see God in all of his grace and that work in our life, we have an intense understanding of the mud and muck in our life. Paul's intent here in instructing Titus is, that you need to let these folks know when you understand grace, they'll say no to the things around them that the world presses upon them. But it's just not negative, it's positive, isn't it? Instructing us to say or deny ungodly and worldly desires to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. Word sensibly is used five times in this short letter. It has about the idea of being sober-minded. He's talking about how we think and how we behave as individuals. 
Uh, What are we learning from Scripture? Uh, How are we allowing uh, the Spirit to lead us and to guide us? Are we living life sensible? It It relates to our personal lives. The second word, righteously, simply means to do what is right. It relates to one's relationship with others. It has about the idea of fairness and integrity and honesty and truthfulness. And finally, grace instructs us to be godly. And that speaks to our relationship with God, doesn't it? When, God, when, when Paul wants to distill the essence of the Christian life in this little letter, he points to a godly lifestyle. In fact, he contrasts ungodliness with godliness. Since that's true, I want us to take just a moment and think about what it means to be godly. Those, that word and holiness and those kinds of words make us uncomfortable. We're not sure exactly what they mean. And they make us uncomfortable. How can we do that? How can we live that kind of a life? Jerry Bridges, longtime missionary with the Navigators, wrote a book entitled The Practice of Godliness. In that book, he points out there are several things that lead to a godly lifestyle. One is a focused desire and devotion for God. He uses the terms thirst and reverence. A focused desire and devotion for God. Second is a growing understanding of God's grace and God's love. And the godly person, based on those two things, acts, moves out, serves, adorns the gospel. One commentator referring to Paul's use of godliness here calls it reverence manifested in actions. I've given to you in your bulletin what I call a very simple definition of what it means to be godly. Godly describes an everyday way of living life that displays a devoted relationship with God. Don't be scared out by these words, uh, scriptural words, uh, godliness and holiness. Holiness simply means being different from the world around you. Not different in an ugly way, but different in a way that sets you off, that adorns the gospel. Godly simply means living a life devoted to God. Godly person's life revolves around the worship and service for God. And I think by adding this word godly to his instruction about the way God, our grace, teaches us, uh, highlights the dependence we have on God. You, you can't muster this life of uh, living sensibly and righteously. Not a list that you can uh, put together that will cause you to do it. It comes through a relationship with God. It demonstrates our dependence upon God. Last Friday we ate hot dogs and hamburgers and went to parades and watched fireworks. We celebrated the 4th of July, Independence Day. In the life of a believer, there is no Independence Day because every day we are dependent upon Him and our relationship with Him to live out a life that is pleasing to Him. Godliness is not the consequence of some human resolve. 
It's based on a relationship with God that results in a life that honors Him. And notice this all happens in the present age. It happens now. The grace that saves us, the grace that instructs us is lived out in our lives. In the age of grace, there are standards that mark our lives. Godliness remains our option, our obligation, excuse me, till Jesus returns. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. The grace of God instructs. And then Paul moves on to two other things that he uses as motivation to a godly life. The first is found in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for. It's about the idea of a, uh, looking regularly for something that is to appear. That should be the characteristic attitude of our lives, looking for the return of Christ. The word hope is not some iffy thing. I hope I get a good grade. I hope I get a raise. I hope I get that job. In the New Testament, hope is a settled expectation that the promise of God will be fulfilled. And here, it's the coming again of Jesus Christ. Those words appearing in glory and hope are uh, linked by the same definite article. They look at the same event, and here at Melanie Park, we believe that event is the catching away of the church called the rapture. When the dead in Christ will be raised and the living will be united with them and with the Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following talks about that. Dr. John Walbert, longtime professor and president of Dallas Seminary, wrote about prophecy. In my mind, he was a, a scholar and an authority on future events. He often returned to the blessed hope as the rapture of the church. In fact, he wrote a book with that title about the rapture of the church. And the certainty of this event is underscored by those words, the great God and Savior Christ Jesus, great God and Savior, who is Jesus. It's the most powerful, or one of the most powerful references to the deity and nature of Christ in all of the New Testament. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. The grace of God instructs us as to how we ought to live. But in the meantime, we're looking for this hope, anticipating the Lord's return. That ought to motivate us as well. John, in his first letter, talks about standing before him unashamed at his coming. But not only is there a motivation of hope, there's a motivating plan in verse 14. And I believe that every word of this phrase is used to convey to these readers the significance of God's plan in their life, who gave himself for us. There it is. He gave, in grace, He gave Himself for us, for you. The word it's for can be translated in place of. Think about it. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper 
the, the bread and the cup represented his body and his blood for you. It was given. And his death on the cross was personal. It was historic. It accomplished what God set out for him. What was, which is actually threefold according to the text. To, uh, to redeem us from every lawless deed. To redeem us from the mud and the muck of sin. The word re- redeem has about the idea of buying one out of the slave market uh, in the agora in the ancient Greek world. Jesus paid the price for our sin. Peter put it this way, you know that from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, you were ransomed, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by the precious blood like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. We were redeemed. Paul goes on to say that you were purified. And to purify for himself a people. This word purify reminds us of the various sacrifices of the Old Testament for God's covenant people. The fulfillment of that act, those sacrifices, is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mark is teaching through the book of Hebrews in his adult Bible fellowship on Sunday morning. And over and over again, that's the point, that Jesus paid the price. He is the fulfillment of all those sacrifices. And He purified a people. Have you ever thought of yourself as pure? <laughs> you come to faith in Jesus Christ. He washes away your sin. He sees you as being in Jesus Christ as pure. And His desire for you is to continue in that purity, to stay out of the muck and mud of the world. redeemed us, purified a people for himself, people for his own possession. Again, going back to the Old Testament, uh, this kind of a concept was used of the Jewish people. Uh, they, they were called my treasured possession in Exodus 19.5. And Paul says those who are redeemed, those who are purified, are a treasured possession. You ever thought about yourself as a treasured possession of God? Why in the world should I stay out of the muck and mud of sin? Because He redeemed me from it. He He cleansed me from it. I, I am a treasure to Him. And the moral objective for all of this is found in the last phrase, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. Zealous to fulfill those instructions in the first ten verses. In this short paragraph, Paul shows us the work of grace in the life of the believer. Grace, God's unmerited favor. His unconditional love for us. His grace that saves us. His grace that instructs us. And when I understand the grace of life of God in my life, it, it protects me from legalism and it propels me to godliness. 
So what I want to do is give you a simple principle, a, a takeaway principle to walk out the door with this morning that I believe flows out of this passage, and it's this. Grace, rightly understand, understood, compels godliness. Grace, rightly understood, understood compels godliness in my life. When I fully understand the grace of God, the hope of God, the plan of God, you know, to motivate us to godliness, which again, describes an everyday way of living life that displays a devoted relationship with God. And let me be very, very clear. Godliness is not something optional for you this morning. It's not something for a, a, a saint in the dusty halls of history or a super saint today. Godliness is an obligation for each of us here this morning who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, when Paul thinks about his job description in chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about being an apostle who was sent to bring people to faith and to teach them to pursue godliness. And Paul in this paragraph tells us that when grace is understood when I fully understand the magnitude of God's love and mercy and grace, it compels me to pursue godliness. The grace of God in my past and my present and my future requires that I say no to worldly desires and yes to living for Him in my everyday life. Now let's be clear, saying no doesn't mean that I retreat from the culture of the world, that I put my head in the sand, that I become a monk or a monkette. <laughs> but it does mean that I'm, in, I'm involved in His Word and led by His Spirit. And I'm careful about how I live my life, what I watch what I read, what I listen to, where I go, how I handle my job. Why? Because we're His ambassadors. We're His representatives. We're, we're to adorn the gospel. Make it attractive. We're to live, yes. We need to be very clear about the requirements of grace. If anyone says that what we do earns God's favor, that's legalistic. If, if anyone devises some plan or some list for you to follow that cannot be supported by Scripture, that's the rubbish of the Pharisees. But if anyone says that it doesn't matter to God how you live your life, that is selfish. It is unbiblical. And it's damaging to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The goal of grace is to transform our lives so that we make the gospel attractive to the world. Demonstrating that transformation and living yes. You may have heard of the little boy who was playing outside when the preacher came to visit. When he burst into the back door running into the family room, he wasn't aware that the preacher was there. 
He saw his mother and he came in dangling a dead mouse by the tail. He said, look, Ma, I got a mouse. It was out by the shed. I beat it with a broom and then I stomped on it. And then he saw the preacher. He said, and then the Lord took him home. <laughs> what that little boy did unknowingly, many adults do very seriously thinking that if they sound religious, that they are religious. If they sound godly, that they are godly. But somehow that little boy standing in the middle of the front room with that dead mouse by the tail, you have cause to wonder if he possessed the religion that he professed. It's clear from this short paragraph that Paul is concerned that our practice is matched by our profession. Our profession is matched by our practice, excuse me. That our behavior matches our belief. That our duty flows out of our doctrine. This short paragraph shows us that if we understand grace, it compels us to say no to the dead mice that dangle in our lives. To say yes to God in us. Because grace rightly understood compels godliness, living every day devoted to God and adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, this week, I know for a fact that you're going to have some divine appointments. The question is, will you make the gospel attractive when you meet that divine appointment in whatever form it comes? Will you adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ because you understand the grace of God in saving you and instructing you? Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for those who are here this morning. Thank you for the words inspired by your Spirit written so long ago by Paul to young Titus for believers on Crete. (laughs) Father, we don't live on Crete. We live in Lubbock. But these words are still so relevant to us. Help us by your Spirit to remember the grace of God in saving us, the grace of God that instructs us to say no, to the things that the world would lead us into. But yes, to the Spirit's leading. Leading that will cause us to live a life that makes the gospel attractive to a lost world that desperately needs to see the Savior. May they see Him in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.